Hello Turkaholics and thank you for downloading this episode of Football a la Turka. We hope you enjoy our podcast and the work we put into bringing it to you each and every week completely free. But for those of you who want to support the show, you can join us on Patreon for just $3 a month. Money we'll use to continue improving our hardware, software and fund our annual hosting on Podbean. You can do so on patreon.com slash F-A-L-T or just check the show notes. Thank you for your consideration of patronage and enjoy the show. Hello Turkaholics and welcome back to Football a la Turka. Today we have a very special episode for you. We have John McManus, author of Welcome to Hell. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Khan, for having me. And uh, Azer and Burak. And of course, Razer and Burak are joining us as well this time. I hope all of you listened to our little preview for Thursday's match against Malatia uh, Sport against Olympia from Slovenia. If you haven't, go check that out. But today we're here to talk to John about his book. And, uh, it's also available on Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. You can buy it both in Kindle form or you can buy a paperback or hardcover. Uh, it's highly recommended. I'm... Personally, I'm only two chapters in because I only got the book yesterday, but it's a great read. I know Uzzer and Burak have both finished it. Guys, how did you like the book? Oh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think that um, it's so much more than a book about Turkish football, which is which is one of its um, main pulling points, because uh, it's a commentary on Turkish society, on the Turkish psyche, on history, on politics, geography. It just captures everything and, and finds the link between football, which is one of the kind of the constant links. Um, that anyone in Turkey will be able to, or even anyone who's visited Turkey will be able to find some sort of affinity and relevance to. So uh, whether you're uh, a fan of a particular club or not, you just want to find out more about Turkey, it's definitely uh, a book to check out. I uh, echo exactly, exactly what Azar said. It's um, anyone who's got any kind of passing interest in Turkish history, Turkish society, Turkish football, I think it's definitely a a must read um it goes into a lot of history a lot of issues uh with society and culture and it just wraps it up in this lovely football shaped bow um for us all to enjoy so uh thanks for joining us on the pod uh john and uh definitely we'll at the end we'll let you plug where people can pick up the book and hopefully it will become a a summer read for lots of our listeners and thank you guys that's very kind you can have me on every week if you say things like that <laughs> No, uh, John, I, I have to say, I think even for people who think they know all about Turkish football, they're going to definitely learn stuff from this book, because I think, especially for younger fans um, who don't know a lot of the, the, the backgrounds from, from the, the 80s and all the research you did uh, from going w- back, way back, 
uh, all that kind of stuff. It's very informative. It, it teaches you more about the identity of the clubs uh, that you, uh, the, the clubs that you uh, address, so to speak. And uh, yeah, no, I, I found it fascinating. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's difficult to find this type of material in English. So I think you did a fantastic job. And um, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. And uh, I'm just sorry I, I wasn't able to finish it on time. But unfortunately, I couldn't track down a copy uh, before uh, the yesterday or, or the day before. Uh, but um, so, John, before we get into um, the talking points that we had outlined here, uh, could you just quickly introduce yourself for the li our listeners who may not know you yet? Sure. So I am British. I'm an anthropologist uh, and I live in Ankara. Um, and I've been studying Turkish football for about 10 years, managing to try and make an academic career out of it, which yeah, uh, so far seems to be working. Fingers crossed it will continue. But initially you started as a, an assistant teacher, right? Oh, well, uh, yeah, after my undergraduate degree, kind of wanting a bit of adventure and something new, I agreed to teach English at a high school in Turkey for six months, having never visited or know anything about Turkey, really. Don't, don't give too much uh, away. Um, People need to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the intro to the book, really. Um, but yeah, needless to say, that was my first experience of Turkey and also Turkish football. And it was quite a powerful one uh, and kind of sent me uh, on this track, really, to kind of want to learn more about both... Well, want to learn more about Turkey and finding that football was a really interesting and, and human way of kind of undertaking that journey mm -hmm. but beforehand before you came to turkey and, and got obsessed with turkish football really and decided to make that your profession to to study turkish football were you obsessed with football in, in england back in england I, I know you you're a leicester fan right but um was football one of your big passions or uh was it just something that you were peripherally paying attention to yeah, I've always been a fan of football. Um, I played a fair bit as a kid and, a, and an adult. Um, but I'm really interested in kind of its like social and political importance, uh, more so perhaps than like the intricacies of the of the you know diamond formation or you know possession. Um, so I, I'm just interested in how important really football has come become to so many cultures around the world and you know kind of questions as to like why that is and what what differences there are and why what we can learn about that i've always i think been in the background and yeah when i came to turkey uh i realized that actually um you know turkey is a bit of a bad image in a lot of the world uh it's not particularly positive in the uk and football is a nice way of kind of humanizing a place or at least exploring a place more sensitively and sidestepping a lot of the stereotypes and baggage which mm -hmm. normally uh you normally encounter uh, i believe burak you and Uzer had made a long list so uh burak maybe you can uh, start off with uh, the first talking point um yes definitely so we're not going in any kind of chronological order of, of how the book is written. So it's certain talking points that Azar and I uh, picked up. So the, the first we wanted to, to ask you about is um, what are your thoughts on the, the classic Turkish airport greetings that are uh, adorned to, to players? Of course, you've had the, the incident with uh, Doris Vassell, who was completely bamboozled when he had people showing up and then 
uh, when Robin van Persie arrived in Turkey, fans were flying in the air uh, for some reason. And then, of course, was for stars like Didier Drogba, Wesley Schneider and the like. Um, what is it with these like fans just showing up at the airport at all times of the day? Um, just showing the absolute, you know, madness and how just wanted to get your ideas on that for a time being. Yeah, sure. I mean, I love these uh, what I call airport greets, which is when um, fans turn out to welcome uh, a new signing who nearly always is a foreigner um, or sometimes, you know, like a Turkish prodigal son returning. Um, and I like them because they kind of pull together many of the threads that for me make Turkish football and kind of Turkey more broadly great, um, which is that like ho- there's great hospitality, uh, great passion and enthusiasm a real kind of sense of the humanness of fans wanting to just, you know, bring this person in and make them feel that they belong. Um, and also kind of like quite a loose idea of health and safety, which uh, I quite enjoy secretly, um, just because it's all <laughs> kind of quite chaotic and uh, and often has the feeling of, of wildly going out of control. Uh, so it kind of wraps up these themes, which persistently come up for me as as another Yabanja, another foreigner in Turkey, albeit a way less famous one. You know, people didn't arrive at the airport to um, to welcome me. Um, so I don't know. I just perhaps that's why I feel like uh, I love it so much. Uh, and I also love, as you pointed out, just the fact that uh, foreign players are often not expecting this. Like Darius Purcell is perhaps the best example um, and if you haven't seen it, uh, a quick YouTube will reveal the video. Literally, um, but in general, uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I don't know. It just kind of is a nice snapshot, really, of 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 what Turkey is about and Turkish football. So, uh, so the, the analysis of the airport greetings is is brilliant because it's one of those things that I think a lot of uh, fans or, or people who just kind of observe Turkish football on the side, it's one of the things that they always associate with the Turkish game. There's kind of crazy, over the top. Uh, airport greeting so it's 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 interesting that you got like that kind of similar view from that i, I just want to kind of uh touch on something you mentioned about the i think you said something about health and safety just then and i it it, it reminded me of something you wrote in the book about turkey the, the 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 turkish opinion on rules which you described as being uh just suggestions rather than actually something that should be obeyed <laughs> uh, which which I thought was really funny and it's something that stuck in my mind and uh, I'm going to steal that going forward when I talk to people about these kind of things But it makes me think uh, of uh, Istanbul traffic for some yeah. reason <laughs> yeah I know right these aren't rules is it, these aren't rules they're just suggestions which is yeah, which is great I think it captures the psyche perfectly but, uh, but I want to use that to, to move on to the Turkish style of football uh, or maybe the lack thereof that, that you talked about and that you touched on briefly in the book because you talked about uh, dribbling as being kind of a good kind of technical attribute that a lot of gifted Turkish players have in abundance. Uh, also, you you touched on the kind of the hip and hit and hope mentality. Two things which kind of are very much kind of solo based and not really things that can be linked as part of a kind of football philosophy or a football system. And do you think these are the true characteristics of of of, of the Turkish game, or do you think that this is kind of involving lately uh, with the abundance of of younger talent who who's being exported from Turkey? Guys like Cengiz Undere, um, Arda Turan, of course, who who you devoted a chapter to, rightly so. Guys like Yusuf Yazaju, who might be on the verge to uh, to uh, other top European clubs. So, do you think that 
this is something that Turkish players are starting to shake off and kind of become more integrated in the in the modern game? Yeah, thanks, Oza. It's a really good question um, about, you know, what is the Turkish style, if there is one? And I don't know, like, I think initially I, I find it, I want to hesitate a bit about being too prescriptive about playing styles because I get a bit irritated by how every single... Uh, not, I'm not accusing you guys of this, but you know, often when people are every instance of, of an Italian playing will be like, oh, defensive. It's obviously the Italian style, or like you know, every instance of like uh, a Spanish player passing the ball two yards is like, that there we go. It's the Spanish style, tiki taka, tiki taka, um, and you know, kind of people bend every element of the game to it. Even though, like, in, for instance, in 2010, Holland got to the World Cup final. Uh, but it wasn't exactly the uh, the Dutch style, was it? You know, they were kind of booting people up in the air. So, um, like, I think everywhere, basically, in short, there there are plenty of people who don't subscribe to it, and and the game in general doesn't always subscribe to what is associated with it. So, I think that like Turkey, yeah, it doesn't have like a distinct style in the way that some of those other places do. And I think the reason for that, you touched upon it, is to do, I think, with the coaching in that like there isn't quite such a systematic scheme uh, well the country is a lot bigger for a start you know than the netherlands for instance uh, and it's it's not so like the football side is not so um institutionally uh like unified in terms of like this is our coaching style this is how everybody from van to istanbul is going to play so I, and I think that's in some ways that's quite good. And, you know, you hear actually, I don't know if you've spoken to any kind of like, for instance, German coaches, but a few of them express that like lament that kind of rough diamonds don't always come through in the German system because kind of it's beaten out of people because they have to play to the system. Whereas in Turkey, I think that that like individuals are far more free to express their talent. And I think that's uh, evident by the players like that you mentioned. So, and I think that that will continue to be the case. Uh, I think uh, until uh, or uh, unless the Turkish Football Federation and the clubs, you know, instill a very, very like, you know, a distinct style and make sure that everybody's drilled in it age from six to, you know, 20. I don't think that's going to change. And personally, I don't think that's going to happen. I just, it's not really, it doesn't feel as if there's the, the will or the mentality behind kind of trying to generate that kind of like DNA or the blueprint and instill it, like instilling it on everyone. Um, so, so, so is that kind of a, a euphemistic way of saying Turkish football philosophy is chaos football <laughs> <laughs> well i mean uh, yeah, sort of a, a bit like i wouldn't go as far as to say chaos perhaps but um i do i do think that like there isn't um there isn't a systematic approach and that's there's pros and cons to that right uh i think that actually to succeed at the highest level internationally i think that you really you kind of need a systematic approach look at the winners of the past world cups you know i mean but so I think that Turkey will struggle internationally while that is the case. But I think that in terms of individual talent, um, I think it can produce quite a lot of amazing players who can go on and like be very successful uh, by, with their clubs. Turan, you know, like um, Under, yeah, Yazıcı, hopefully, you know, may, plenty of others, obviously, in the past as well. So, uh, you know, there's there's pros and cons. Um, but yeah, uh, a quick question that I have for you. Um just from the top of my head, from, from, from reading the first part. I'm not going to reveal uh, anything. Uh, if people want to know who you support, uh, then they'll have to read the book. 
uh, pick it up and read it. But I wonder when when you first published a book, when you decided on the title, do you get a lot of people assuming, for example, that you're a Galtzrai fan or something just because of the title of that book and because of that slogan being so closely associated to Galtzrai? Uh So the story behind the title of the book um, is that uh, really kind of, it's not really, really linked the primary audience of the book uh, probably not people who listen to this podcast as in it's mostly people who perhaps have no interest in turkey or it's a very 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 slight one um and for those people kind of uh when you mention turkish football the first thing that comes to mind is this phrase right welcome to hell which was used uh to welcome manchester united when they came to play galatasaray in 1993 uh and then ensued a very famous match where Eric Cantona got sent off. The Man U players got beaten up by the police. And Galatasaray went through in the Champions League and Manchester United went out. And then at seven years of that, there was the tragic deaths of the two Leeds fans at the hands of Galatasaray supporters. So it kind of really established in the British press and the British public mind this idea of Turkey as hell and, you know, uh, an unfair, violent place. And when I turned up in 2008, like my welcome, and when I started exploring Turkish football, my experience was the complete opposite. I was warmly welcomed and I kind of saw a lot of the humanity and the humour and uh, in Turkish football. And yes, occasionally the violence. But um, uh, so, you know, the whole purpose of the book really was to try and uh, move beyond that initial image um which is not to not to dismiss it because you know there are issues with violence in turkish football and as as um readers can see i i do discuss them in the book but really that's kind of learning you know one part of the game and uh, i get a bit frustrated at how you know all attention is given to that one part i mean like imagine if you're you know english people if everybody just banged on about you know violence in the 80s and um you know, Hazel, you know, you'd get quite irritated. You'd be like, no, come on, there's way more to, to English football than that. And the same with Turkey. So, no, I haven't found that lots of people think that I'm a Galatasaray fan. I think that, um, yeah, they, they just, um, I have experienced a few, from a few people in Turkey that they think the book is only about the big three clubs, mainly because it's got them on the cover. But, you know, as anybody who would look at the title page would realise, sorry, the contents page, would realize that uh, I do talk about places outside of Istanbul. And when you were doing your research, because uh, you go back quite a bit, uh, did you also uh, attempt to watch old games or something like that? Was that possible? Did you do, did you find a type of material or uh, wasn't that really, because not, that's not really what the book is about, but like, for example, you do touch on Metinali Feas in the book. Um, did you do a lot of research in terms of, of watching footage and, and things like that? Uh, not a lot in terms of watching footage. I mean, I would often be, so I'm an anthropologist and like our research method is essentially like just be steered by the people that you interact and talk with. So a lot of my, uh, the places I would go to, I'd go there because of what people were telling me. And, and in some ways I was kind of interested more in, in their stories and why for them Metin, Ali and Veils was such like an amazing trio. And, uh, you know, yeah, I looked at a few videos just, kind of see what what the fuss is about but really um i wasn't looking to try and like on as an like omnipotent outsider make a point about metin ali Feyaz, but more to explain why for beshtash fans these players are so important you know to get kind of to the really to the life of football in turkey and and why people hold it so close to them 
Uh, and so for that, you don't really need a lot of knowledge of, of past games or past players, really. You just need to have kind of sensitivity to why people are, you know, interested in X or Y. And so that's how I tried to kind of structure the book. Um, yeah. And also, I think that the, the positive of that is I think that if you're not a big football fan, I think you'd still like the book, really. Or if you don't like football at all, I'd, I'd like to think but you're interested in Turkey. I'd like to think that the book still could speak to you because it's you know not about formations and old games all the time. And you also mentioned uh, in, in a certain point that the truth isn't always that important. It's more about the stories that people are telling you. You were telling a story about uh, an old man with a beard uh, who assumed that you were just a foreigner who didn't really know all that much and he started telling you all these stories and he was embellishing quite a lot um and and, and that's part of it too i guess and then the stories you were following and but it's about discovering what it means for people and and the society and as you put it and i think that's a very fascinating aspect of the of the book and that's why i think you, you said it's it's mainly aimed at for example british people but I think it's a it's a fascinating book, especially for Turks uh, living in, in in Europe and in, in America. You know, diaspora Turks. I think it's a very fascinating um, book to read as well because a lot of young people, especially, are looking for a certain identity. I've uh, I uh, I often call it. Um, a little bit of a of a of a complex where young people in, in particular are trying to prove their Turkishness, um, but I think this book also kind of ties into the identity of Turkish culture, uh, of Turkish football culture, but also Turkish society, and it might be very interesting for those types of people to read as well. Uh, so I don't think it's it's just for 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 British people. I yeah, I think you did a great job at. Um, putting that into words so it's following on from what you discussed about the uh, the welcome to hell um title of the book and how that came about um just want to get your uh, from you john so before you traveled out to uh, turkey for the first time back in 2008 um having only heard about turkey and turkish people via so the press not having experienced it firsthand what were some of like the the preconceptions you had about uh, turkish football turkish people and just turkey the country in in general and how were they kind of turned on their head um because like i say the the in the book is uh, vastly just about your your positive experiences and the welcome you received so i just wanted to get your your thoughts on thoughts on that yeah sure well I knew very, very little about Turkey. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't have any friends in the UK who were like Turkish or part Turkish. I'd never been there on holiday. Didn't really know anyone who'd been there on holiday. Um, but at the same time, I, I didn't, I also kind of, I don't know, could see that a lot of the coverage uh, of Turkey was quite sensationalist uh, and quite shallow, to be honest. Uh and I don't know, especially after two, uh, you know, nine eleven, the way that kind of like Muslim majority nations are being presented in the media, not all the media, but a lot of it was um, like quite frustrating. And like growing up at, at that time, I mean, I was sixteen when nine eleven happened. Like I could, I didn't, I could tell in a way that like there was more to it. I was like, hang on, I'm not quite sure that, that what I'm being told is is the be all and end all. I'm sure there's more there than than kind of people people are going on about but I didn't really have the wherewithal or the or the chance to kind of learn more 
Um, and that's one reason why I kind of took this opportunity to go and work and live in Turkey after I'd finished my undergraduate. Um, I didn't actually choose Turkey. I, um, it was kind of, uh, I just had to list some countries in order of preference and Turkey was actually my third choice. Um, but I'm really glad I got it. I got my third choice, that is, because, um, yeah, I kind of came and uh, in some ways it wasn't that, like uh, negative perceptions were corrected because I didn't really have negative perceptions. It was more just like, you know, uh, knowledge was filled in and I just actually, you know, realized um, how, yeah, just how kind of how diverse Turkey is really. And this is what kind of, um, yeah, I, I, an enduring point that I keep coming back to is just, you know, Turkey is almost more diverse than people kind of realize on the outside, maybe because it's quite uh, comparatively small compared to a lot of other diverse countries. Um, but, you know, packed into Turkey is just so many like different histories, religions, pol political views uh, and views on football. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I've just found it like really uh, interesting just learning about that. Um, and trying to give voice to it. And so when you come across people who have a particular image of Turkey, just being able to actually kind of say politely, like, well, it's not all about that, actually. You know, it's also about this. I think, yeah, that, no, that's, that's brilliant. I think um, it, and it, leads, it leads me on really nicely, actually, to, to my next question, because, for example, a lot of people outside Turkey have this idea that Istanbul is the capital, for example. But, of course, Ankara is the capital of Turkey, and it's also where, where, what you, where you call home right now. Um, and being in Ankara kind of gives you an advantage in, in the sense that you get to see the Turkey of um, kind of the Republican project uh, through the eyes of the Republican project of Turkey. So away from the kind of the pomp and circumstance of Istanbul. So my question in terms of footballing terms is what do you think prevents Ankara from becoming a, a true football city like Istanbul, like Izmir, which has you know, a lot of passion, or like Trabzon, which has passion and glory and all that kind of thing. What is it that, that prevents Ankara from, from, from giving it, putting itself on the map and from making the world kind of give it, giving, um, giving a position to the world where it says, look, this is Ankara, this is the capital of Turkey and a capital of football in Turkey? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things. I think Ankara is one of the few, uh, like, sorry, Turkey is one of the few nations in which a team from the capital have never won the top division um yeah so you're absolutely right that there's this um there's clearly like a an exiclic like deficiency in terms of Ankara's footballing prowess uh and it's a great question I I'm afraid I don't have like a nice neat answer to this because I I think it's 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 slightly I think it's complicated I think it's also a bit of a puzzle but, I mean there's a lot of factors in there and I think that like a, an important one is just the dominance of Istanbul culturally like and not just in sport but like you know all the media industry is there you know any uh musician who is worth their salt is based there more or less um and it really kind of sucks a lot of attention um and that doesn't leave a lot of oxygen for other places and maybe like uh the thing with Ankara is like uh most people in Ankara come from somewhere else uh that's the case in a lot of cities in turkey but I th uh, ankara is one of the uh one of the places that saw the greatest migration in the 60s and 70s and so perhaps as a result it's i don't know been a bit harder to create a, a kind of sense of belonging to the city 
I mean, you know, Istanbul obviously has this history. So even if you're an outsider, you can just easily slot into that. But like Ankara until 1923 was a town of 20,000 people. Um, So uh, now for most people who live there, you have no sense, no palpable sense of the history um, when you're going about your day. Uh, And maybe that means that you don't feel the same connection. And maybe that means that you don't feel quite as attached to the football teams. And I mean, obviously, the biggest factor is is the same. What kind of stops football in uh, in a lot of places in Turkey? Sorry, football fans and local football culture, which is the dominance of the big three: uh, Galatasaray, ben- Fenerbahce, and Beşiktaş. Um, and yeah, that is obviously a real hindrance to any uh, local culture being created. Uh, you know, you mentioned like Izmir and Trabzon. They perhaps because football are um, they have like a local team and football arrived there a bit earlier. They've managed to kind of, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. I think because they have a, a greater sense of their own locality and their own geographic kind of specificness that that translates better into football support. Like, you know, uh, you're, if you're Trabzonbu, then it's it's a much stronger identity than being Ankara. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a, a combination of factors um, uh, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, I should say that, you know, Ankara Gücü, who are the, um, are like very, are well, pretty well supported in, in Ankara. They get, you know, pretty good attendances, but then at the same time, in, institutionally, the club is kind of falling to pieces as we speak. So uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it's, I don't see Ankara changing uh, anytime soon. That's a problem we see in a lot of regions because we do have this image of, well, you know, Turkish football is dominated by the three big Istanbul clubs and then, of course, Trabzonspor, and we've seen Bursaspor eke in there. But there's a lot of those types of clubs like in Ankara Gücü, like now Bursaspor, that, that do have proper support, but they've fallen down, down the ladder and down the tiers of Turkish football and they're playing... Some of them are playing in obscurity. Um, Besiktas the other day played a friendly against Kocelispor, and Kocelispor is a club that I have very fond memories of. Uh, always had good crowds, and I didn't realize, but to my chagrin, when I looked it up, they were playing in the fourth division, and it's it's, it's kind of a shock to me. Like I thought they were in like the second or the uh, well, I thought they were in the third division actually, and and. Hopeful, hoping st- uh, that they would climb their way back up. And now, of course, recently Denizli Spore found their way back up to the Super League. But there's other clubs like Sakarya Spore, Adana Demir Spore. There's plenty of these clubs that do have loyal fan bases. But because they've fallen off the wagon, they are kind of forgotten about by many people. And what we do see is local governments investing in clubs like, let's say, Bashakshi here. Um, and, 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 and smaller municipality clubs with very little support, and they're climbing up. And we see a lot of low-attendance clubs in the Super League while we have clubs in the lower leagues, like, for example, on Eskishir, like I already said, Adana Spor, uh, Adana Demirspor, um, Zakaria Spor. And those are clubs that are playing for 10, 12, 13, 15, in the case of, of, uh, of Eskishir, over 20,000 people during their home matches. Um and that's also a fundamental issue. I don't know if you looked much into it, but this this mentality, this this is ingrained in, ingrained in Turkish society a little bit. It seems like of short term uh, vision, spending a lot of money that they don't really have, uh, which ends up uh, bankrupting the clubs. 
Um, is that something that, that, that you also took under the loop, so to speak? So there's a lot to unpack here, really. Um, but I think that a key point is that, you know, local football is also inextricably linked to local politics. And I think that the fortunes of some of these uh, regional footballing cultures are linked uh, quite strongly to political fortunes. And that, that's not that's not a simplistic map because politics in different places has changed. Um, but like I'm, I'm always a bit shocked, really. Like the, I come from the UK and the UK is quite a centralised country. Like I, I've also lived in Germany for six months. And when I was in Germany, I I was really shocked by just how regional it was. I lived in Cologne and, you know, there was such a sense of, you know, people from Cologne being very different to people from, you know, like Hanover and not to mention even Berlin, you know, these regions were very strong and they had a lot of autonomy and they also had a lot of power to, you know, define their own education systems and their own laws and whatever. Um, and what's well, Turkey is, is a very centralized country, you know, like um, a lot of things are decided in Ankara and then implemented uh, the same everywhere. And uh, but as I kind of said earlier, Turkey is a very diverse country. And so in some ways, like there's a bit of a conflict there. I feel that like often that diversity is not properly being like uh, doesn't have a proper outlet sometimes. Uh, and what, what has this got to do with football? Well, I think that like it's to do with, um, you know, like uh, supporting local clubs or being able to if, if like politically like a city doesn't have a lot of um you know autonomy then sometimes it's quite hard for the elites there to kind of put all their emphasis into the club in some ways um so i think that like part of it is perhaps like not helped by the lack of regionalism um but i should say that i'm not a huge expert on this in terms of um don't i haven't spent a lot of time researching local clubs uh and their structures uh there's some actually a, a guy doing a phd in uh duke university uh, he might finish now called jan evren who uh has been looking at bursa sport he's from bursa himself and uh yeah i think that he is um doing lots of really interesting work about like what does bursa sport mean for the city and you know how are local elites involved in the club and you know how has it changed over the years so uh yeah maybe um yeah he would be a good person to kind of chat to about this in more detail uh, what, what's your take on on the whole Bashakshir project for example do you think that if that would have been let's say they would have done that with uh, with an Ankara club do you think it would have been more successful because they've been trying to get support for that club trying to drum it up but in, in a city that's already divided in three I think it was a very weird decision to 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 go ahead with the whole Bashakshir project so to speak yeah, so yeah, the Bashak Shahir project is is quite a crazy story, really, and um, one which uh, I, I only briefly touch upon in the book. But actually, I've just written like a, a long piece for um, a magazine called The Blizzard, which some of your UK listeners might be aware of. It's like a football magazine, um, which about solely about Bashak Shahir, which should be coming out in September. Um, but to answer your question, I feel as I'm not sure it would have been a lot more successful in Ankara, to be honest. I mean, in Ankara, we had a kind of uh, Bashak Shahir version or a Bashak Shahir light in the yeah, in the Osmanli. in the form of Osmanli sport, and yeah, as as they are, um, you know, even though they almost got promoted to the Super League, their attendant when Meli Gurcek 
left power, their attendances dropped and they have maybe like, I don't know, a few hundred people or something going to their games. So I don't think that that kind of, yeah, I don't think that the operation of generating a club entirely from scratch mm-hmm. uh, is is going to be particularly successful in Turkey. Um, and, the you know, there's lots of reasons uh, behind that. I feel that, like, yeah, perhaps lending, if, if, if like, you know, people, it's obviously clearly, like, meant to be uh, seen as, uh, well, it's, it's kind of seen as a government club. And I think that, like, you know, President Erdogan is very keen to generate that image um and it's just quite interesting that they wanted to do that with a new club rather than to kind of take uh, a cl- an existing club and and to try and uh you know make that more closely attached um and the reason is i think because actually these clubs have their own identity and their their own histories and they're not very easy to take over I, that goes for like you know most established clubs in turkey they have kind of uh their own uh, identities and yeah that's one one of the great things about kind of turkey and turkish football that actually there is this you know people have this strong sense of of what their club is about um, and a bit, it varies from fan to fan but it's strong enough for them to kind of not want their club to be used just to kind of make a you know make some sort of uh, wider statement about politics or society or something just something I noticed when I was reading uh, the book, John, I think it would be quite interesting f- to get the, to explain to the listeners as well. So, you know, this isn't a spoiler as such, but it's just like a little tidbit on, in, in the book is, is when you were in the Besiktas district and Besiktas had won, won the league, I can't remember which season it was, but they were, there's a tradition in Turkey where when a team wins the league, they hang their flags up in the streets. So currently, if you walk around the streets of Istanbul, you'll see adorned with the Galatasaray flags. Um, that was the same when Fenerbahce uh, win the league, when Besiktas did win the league, uh, Trabs on Borussia even. Um, these little streets, um, they almost have the right to hang their flags up. And you were speaking to a shop owner in the Besiktas area who said, we, we do this every year. And you said, well, even if Fenerbahce were in the league, you, you would do it. And if Galatasaray would do it, you would hang the flags up. And he replied with yes. So, and they collect money from neighbouring shops. So it doesn't matter if, what team they support. And I was thinking to myself, imagine I was in North London and Arsenal had won the league. And I went into a shop that was owned by a Spurs fan and asked them for a donation so they could hang Arsenal flags up. You'd get chased out of the shop, absolutely. And it would be the same in in Rome, you know, if you did it with um, with uh, Roma Lazio. I'm sure in Spain, you know, if you had it with um, uh, Madrid, with Real Atletico, and other cities where you know where these derbies are happening. Um, and the guy you were speaking to said, "This this is Mahalle culture. You know, this is neighbourhood neighbourhood culture." So I just wanted to get your your opinion on that, where you have such a fierce rivalry between these three big Istanbul teams, yet Mahalle culture seems to neg- negate that and everyone still comes together. Um, I just want to get your, your opinion on that, if that surprised you at all. It definitely surprised me when I read that in the book, and hopefully the way I've described it would um, has maybe caused us, us fans to think about that ourselves. 
No, great question. I mean, this is one of my eternal fascinations because uh, is how this rivalry can be like incredibly fierce to the point of people shedding blood and even dying. Uh, but then at the same time, it can be completely negated in kind of, or at least, you know, uh, held in a very friendly fashion in like the example that you just gave. Um, and I think the key is to not try and make it one of those things permanently, to not try and say, oh, it's not, you know, there isn't really any any big beef behind it. They all love each other really and they hang out their flags and it's all fine. Um, <laughs> uh, because that's clearly not the case and not, but neither is it the case as, as I showed that like everybody hates each other and never speaks to anyone. Um, so I think that there's, there's just like a fluidity there. And I was always interested into like when and why it kind of changes. Um, and it's, it's funny, you know, like, you know, people just because there's basically uh, with, with apologies to Trabzon sport fans and, and, and the like, you know, there are really only kind of, uh, these three clubs dominate so much over all of Turkey that they manage, like, in a way, you can't not be friends or family members of people who support other teams. Um, so with other rivalries, like, um, um, with other clubs in Europe, I'm, I'm no expert, but, you know, like, Ar Arsenal, whilst they have fans across the country, you know, it's, you know, they are like a North London club and their support is kind of concentrated there, perhaps. Uh, and the same with Spurs. Arsenal and Spurs don't have the same coverage over the UK um, in terms of fan fanaticism in the way that Bishtash, Fenerbahce, Galatasaray do. So I think that this in some ways means that you can't always be like um, like a partisan because it's ridiculous. Because if you're always a partisan, then you're going to really offend your uncle Mehmet or like your auntie, yes, uh, you know, Serap or whatever, um, because they support other clubs. So it kind of weaves in and out, you know, and I'm always, I, I'm, in life, I'm not a very contra like sort of. I've never been a particularly like um, a person drawn to conflict. I, I don't like conflict. I always like to try and you know seek uh, a, a middle ground in in conversations with people. And maybe that's why you know. I mean, someone could write a book about Turkish football and just uh, and about terrible rivalry. And I'm sure we've all watched the YouTube videos, which you know go on and on about how awful the Galatasaray Fenerbahce rivalry is. And they're not wrong. But again, they're just emphasizing one element of it. And I think maybe just because of my personality and maybe I, I just wanted to try and balance the scales of it, I'm kind of drawn more to these stories of cooperation or, or kind of at least, you know, friendliness in some ways. And there are quite a lot of them actually, and you don't have to go very hard to find them. Um, the example you gave in the book, I didn't even like, I didn't even, you know, I was just walking down the street and saw this flag and chatted to a guy. It wasn't as if I'd gone out of my way to find it. So... Yeah, um, I think that it's important to uh, not take this rivalry as the be-all and end-all. Um, just look at this podcast. And yes, right, exactly. That's <laughs> a very good point. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, it's um, it's important to, yeah. I don't know, I once read something about, like, uh, I sometimes feel as if the problem with the world sometimes, this is just perhaps going a bit philosophical, and therefore you, you should probably cut this bit, but um, no, it's, it's about... It's uh, this is a very BBC uh, Two podcast, my issue, so carry on. <laughs> the, uh, I often feel as if like the issue often is... like The enemy of a lot of things is literalism. You know, There's just so many people who are taking people and things just so literally all the time. You know, and really, actually, like life is just more complicated. That You can't always, you know... Uh, you can't always just 
you know, take something at face value or, you know, um, people often contradict themselves. Uh, we all do. Uh, and we all need to just kind of cut each other a bit of slack from time to time. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. Um, that was part of what I found. I, that's what I like about being in Turkey. And uh, going back, someone, one of you mentioned earlier that I wrote something which I'd, I'd forgotten I'd written, actually. The rules in Turkey are perhaps more like suggestions rather than ironclad rules. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's maybe that's what has attracted me to Turkey as someone who grew up in a place which is not quite so... You know, which is a bit more straight laced and kind of, you know, has a lot more jobs worth. Is I really, really like how in a lot of interactions in Turkey, um, the humanity of people kind of shines through a bit more, and you can always find a solution. And even the stern uh, government official who tells you, like, absolutely not, this driver's license can't be accepted without, you know, X or Y. Actually, if you chat for a bit, you, you show that you've got, you go and you try something and you come back and, you know, you can often find a way. And like people, I think in, in a lot of interactions, the, they in, they engage with the humanity of the person or they allow that to shine through a bit more. They don't hide behind the rules quite so much. Um, yeah. Anyway, that is a, a, a big tangent, which uh, probably should be cut. But no, anyway. no, no! I do plenty of those, so you're enti you're entitled to do uh, a few of, of your own. Um, but let's turn to the terraces. Uh, which terrace song struck you the most? Um, which one appealed to you the most? And is there a Turkish equivalent to, for example, "You Never Walk Alone" or something like that? Um, so one of my favorite, uh, and I'm going to give away which side I support here, perhaps. But um, <laughs> I'll believe it. Is, uh, one of the earliest ones I learned. <laughs> uh, we came to die for you Besiktas, this this kind of quite short song uh which uh for me like it was one of the first i actually understood i um back in the day when my turkish was really really poor it's still not a lot better now but um uh but for me that sentiment is just like so over the top it's brilliant you know uh, you know British football clouds, especially Leicester City, which I'm from Leicester and uh, that's my side. Uh, they're just, you know, our chant is essentially, come on Leicester. That's pretty much the extent of the emotional... <laughs> Yeah, I went to uh, I went to PSV Basel yesterday, and basically the the biggest chance they had was a come on PSV, come on PSV. And for example, at, at Anderlecht, uh, the biggest uh, chant they have is we are Anderlecht, we are Anderlecht. So I think I, <laughs> the Turkish uh, chants are usually a little bit more over the top and a little bit more elaborate. Um, I don't know if you uh, if you like this one. This is one I think is a little less over the top, but uh, very good. It's uh, but I forgot what the intro to it is. But I think that's one that one's a little bit more more realistic. You know, I cry. You know, I cry for you. Um, I, I laugh with you. You're my everything. All that kind of stuff. But I, I think that's it's very poetic, really. If you compare the, the the songs on the terraces in Turkey to, for example, here in Belgium and Holland, where it's a lot more. Mm, yeah, they're trying to over English it. Like for example, like I said, like we are on the lake. Okay, okay, that's good. I always find <laughs> could, it so. Could, yeah. Could, could I could I just butt in here before you respond to that, John? Because I think <laughs> Kana set it up perfectly for me to, for me to interject. Uh, because I have your book in front of me here, and I'm, I'm on page one nine seven for any listeners with the book in their hand as well. And it's on exactly what Khan just mentioned about the poetry within the terraces. 
uh, and I think it's when you were visiting Adana, uh, Demirspor were playing in the derby, uh, and the, po- the poem that you, the, that you share is this, uh, believe kids, believe, we'll see good days, sunny days, Good the issue. blue engines will continue. We'll sing the championship song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you go on to say the words are adapted from a poem by Turkey's most famous poet, Nazim Hikmet, who spent much of his life in exile in the Soviet Union for his leftist views. It seemed a perfect meeting of message and purpose, and utterly at odds with the game in England, like what Khan referred to about the game in Belgium. It's hard to imagine the crowd at Stoke City suddenly belting out a W.H. Auden poem. <laughs> and, and I read that, it really, it really made me laugh because I thought, it's so true, it's so absurd that such an elegant uh, few verses could appear in what is ultimately a very savage environment in a football yeah, terrace. But that's the thing, uh, like... And it's brilliant, and it, and it ties into what John was referring to in, uh, earlier on about the kind of the literalism that should be taken quite lightly in, in Turkish football because, like, it's... You're reciting a nice poem here, talk, saying something that's you know that's romantic, it's it's philosophical, it's this and that. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a few guys kicking a ball around. It's just brilliant that it works so perfectly in the Turkish context. Yeah, I mean, um, very nicely put. Uh, not a lot more to add to that, other than <laughs> like there is just such a um, such a huge repertoire of songs in Turkish football and that is just something which I'm still only really have scratched the surface of and partly because of the language because you know poetry is one of the most difficult uh, things to properly understand in a foreign language so um, there's still so many songs which I don't fully uh, haven't got to the bottom of the meanings of um, you know sat on buses with fans singing but I'm always amazed that on like a six hour drive to an away match, they can just go through song after song after song and not have to repeat them because mm-hmm. there's just such a large repertoire that people know. Uh, and that's obviously linked to wider cultures of like um, of music and oral poetry, which is stretching back a long time. Uh, and it's wonderful. And it's so different from the UK. Is, is that something you picked up, up, up on as well when you were uh, researching some of that? Uh, the the pl- the plagiary that uh, is done in that uh, in that world of uh, lyrics that are being made up and be one one week uh, a new song will be introduced on one terrace and two weeks later other you know other fan groups are singing the same one in different stadiums is that something that because uh, I I remember growing up um, my cousins are all Fenerbahce fans boo um, <laughs> and I remember that there was a lot of contention about who does the chant belong to you know originally is that something you ever came across in your research yeah definitely and I mean like I spent I've spent disproportionate amount of time with Besiktas fans and they always are very you know often like we we generate the songs yeah and the I other know clubs but I didn't want to say it you know <laughs> uh, which you know, but I find it interesting like that, that that for me is like i don't know as an anthropologist it's kind of meat and drink is this you know just how this like creation of like cultural products in this case songs and then how they just they don't really have owners right they kind of shift and move and uh they can't really be held properly by one person and and that's fine i mean like i i find it quite funny in some ways to see how upset or angry people get about this and just like oh just relax this is what happens to songs it shows actually it shows actually it's a like form the, of appreciation yeah well and also just the strength and depth of that culture that they can just come and go and be exchanged and traded quite so sort of like yeah and influence one another um and yeah that's one of the few you know the element of turkish football which which endures really even though the game is changing so quickly and so many elements of even when i first started going 10 years ago have kind of you know 
altered as the stadiums have altered and various other things have altered but you know still songs are still very important and mm-hmm. and most teams you know the, the singing the singing during games is still you know pretty good yeah and turkey of course has this reputation across the world of having this, these amazing atmospheres but it, it's really a shame that i, I think that you know 90 of, of of non-turks don't even realize what 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 we just been talking about of how much poetry there really is on the stands because like you said there's this preconception of turkish football being a little bit uh, savage beastly maybe and and lots of violence and this and that um but also the the the, the great atmospheres is something that gets touted a lot and something that is a uh, general uh, usually accurate preconception that people have but it's a shame they don't really understand what the fans are singing because like you just pointed out sometimes these these lyrics can be really quite uh, poetic what appreciate you for a song that you think um it could potentially be a, a turkish version as similar to like you'll never walk alone that song by the liverpool fans um as a farabachi fan myself i want to push forward have you ever seen or heard uh, when the farabachi fans start singing uh, samanyolu which is a famous love song from the 70s Um, is that something you're familiar with at all? No, it's not. Um, let me imagine imagine it to you. Imagine um, uh, it, Berkant was a, a chap who sang it. He's kind of like a lounge singer, I would say. So someone in the song is in the style or something you'd maybe hear by like an Andy Williams, um, You're Too Good To Be True, or maybe like a, a lesser version of a, like, let's say uh, even Frank Sinatra, even though that is a preposterous uh, comparison. But it's yeah, it's actually just a normal song that is it's pretty much synonymous with with Fenerbahce fans, and it's just sung before games, after games. So I was just curious to see if you were ever um, familiar with uh, any sing, sing it, Burak. Sing it for 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 John, so he knows what you're talking about. Uh, are we really going to do this? Yes, do it. <laughs> Or you you can you can hum it if you, you no know, no you no, no. Sing. sing. Come on. Okay. <laughs> so. The chorus, John, would go something like this. It would go, Bir şarkısın sen Ömür boyu sürecek Dudaklarından Yıllarca düşmeyecek See, and I think Khan sang one, so I think Özer <laughs> is next with a rendition at some point. But yeah, I was already humming it when we were introducing it. Bravo, bravo, bravo. <laughs> No, very nice. You are the true um, channel, brother. You know, you'll recognize it because when it's played in the stadium, it's like it sounds like this really old recording from like the 40s or something. It uh, is from the 70s. It's the original uh, recording. Yeah, it, it sounds. Yeah. It, it sounds very. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't. It sounds like it doesn't belong in a modern football stadium, but it has it definitely has its charms. Well, so, no, I mean this this is brilliant, Burak. I lo- like yeah, and again shows kind of my point about the depth of, of it all and also my ignorance of a lot of it because I've, I've never like I've been to Fenerbahce games and I'm sure I've heard that sung and played but I, I had no idea about it I had no idea about the cultural connotations associated with it um, and yeah like um, thank you for kind of like introducing to me and in this regards it, it just reminds me that like a lot of my exposure to Turkish football uh, has really come through Beşiktaş fans, probably like 80-90% that high because I... Anyway, so, um, yeah. <laughs> Don't need anything else um, than that. 
Um, you so know, you, you don't I... need all all different kinds of education. You just need to write education, John, and and you've you've chosen the right track. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I I just actually realized actually uh, how socialized I am as a Bishop Kashfan, uh, and it means that um, unfortunately I'm not as aware of of the richness of. Fenerbahce and Galatasaray cultures, which is not the same as, uh, I'm not saying that they are not as rich. They absolutely are. I'm saying that I don't fully understand that or know it. So, um, yeah, so thank you for kind of, you know, just revealing yet one more element to that. I think whenever you have clubs that have such a long and storied history, to, you know, there's just so many layers to uncover. I think it'll t it'll take three lifetimes to, to find out all of a all of the nuances. Uh, and so, yeah, so just sorry to answer your question directly. Like, I, So I, that's why I can't really answer your question about a you'll never walk alone equivalent because I don't, I don't have the knowledge of Galatasaray and Fenerbahce. And, you know, I, uh, I don't know what the songs mean for the, for those fans to the same extent. I mean, amongst Bishtash fans, uh, like I don't think there is one song. I think that there are. That, that this is kind of the point that there's like an opera or like such a, a huge emotional range of songs, and you choose the song for the moment, you know. And they come and go, and some are in mode and some are not in yeah. mode. Whereas at Liverpool, uh, at Liverpool, they kind of have a, a short, a smaller repertoire, a more small repertoire. Yeah, and we also see sometimes that 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 songs disappears for a year on end, and then after like a decade, they suddenly return. There's a uh, very specific songs for for when things aren't going good, when things are going good. Oh, there's a, there's a I remember in 2004, uh, when everything was still going good in 2003, there was this song that we we always used to sing on the stands, and then as soon as the the whole Jim Papilla thing happened, uh, I haven't heard it. Um, them for about 10 years or, or longer I think until like 2015 when it came back but I can't remember which song it is um, but yeah uh, it's too hot to think sorry <laughs> but it's, I, it's I fine do, yeah it's, uh, it's just so incredibly warm here so I hope for those people yeah. who are listening to this and who are thinking what is wrong with Khan is he having some kind of seizure or something no people it's just really freaking hot okay yeah. <laughs> and, and just to give you a little bit of um, a, the legend of apparently how this song was adopted is the guy who sang it was actually a Fenerbahce fan and around the time of the song's release he would be going to games and he'd be in with the fans who would say Barakantabi, you know, Barakantabi, Hebberabi, you know, all together now and they would just <laughs> launch into it. Now whether that's true or not, I'd like to believe it is, but it's just like like one of those legends I, I've read. Uh, just about um, you know, but it's one of those things you'd like to believe is true, but yeah. no one really knows. And it's one of those things that harkens back as, as well to uh, for the first chapter that John wrote about is that, you know, they want to basically own a certain thing. Like for example, I, I, a big point of contention as well is that uh, you know who did Ataturk support? For example, that's always been like a big thing as well. You know, and Fenerbahce like to lay claims to him. Uh, you know. I think that's well, we see that with popular artists too, especially the ones that are already deceased and who can't clarify for themselves anymore. Well, we we know he was a fan of Archie fan, so uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, well, we we know he supported the uh, ideals of the uh, of the French, so I think he was more of a Galatasaray fan. Yeah, yeah, Frenchy, that's all good for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I expected Barack to chime in there. We smuggled guns during the during the Balkan Wars. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry, I'm going off track a little bit. Um, so uh, uh, you, you pick in with the, yeah. with the next one. Well, well, actually, yeah. On that so on that point, so so John, so as a man, as a scholar of Turkish football and, and indeed of Turkish society, I picked this book up, especially with the cover and the title "Welcome to Hell." I thought. For sure, I'm going to find the answer to the million-dollar question that's been bugging me throughout my whole life, and that is why. Oh, why is Galatasaray nicknamed Jimbo? And it's something that I've heard a lot of rumours about this and that, but I have never found or come across the definitive answer. Uh, do you have any idea as to what might have led to that nickname? As a, I wish, <laughs> I wish, I wish I could help you uh, because it also really bugs me as well i'm afraid i'm afraid i don't know uh i i i feel i've let you and the reading public down uh by not including this i'd like to say that you know there are lots of other important insights in the book so please don't uh, you know, <laughs> and, and especially if you're a galatasaray please don't see this as symptomatic of like lazy research like like the thing with turkish football is it's so broad and there's so much history there like i wasn't attempting to to produce something which was a definitive like a to z or you know from the start to the finish that would just be crazy i'm not sure if, if it's even possible um so it's unapologetically uh kind of me sing signaling out singling out sorry what i think are some of the important and interesting parts of turkish football so there are gaps and one of them is sadly uh the name the nickname of, no, of, of in, 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 in your defense john i think you could uh have researched the rest of your life trying to find this out and i don't think you'd ever get a definitive answer so um it's just one of those questions that will forever be asked so um it's, it's like it's, the secret it's, to it's, dragon glass right well well yeah i mean it's just one of those things that's just gonna let live on in in uh, in myth and mystery for for forever yeah and there's lots of those uh those those things that gets um, changed mixed up in, in history like for example you know the whole story of, of the the Besiktas colors there's different versions of that and uh, versions even that were on the official website and then later debunked it and uh, I don't know if you you touched on that in, in, in the book at some point John but uh, there's there's lots of these legends really that start living their own lives almost and and different versions of it and I don't know if you I mean, I don't know if you have that in, 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 in other countries. As you, well, I'm sure there's countries where you have that too, but that seems to be something very Turkish, though, wouldn't you say? Well, well, I mean, uh, it isn't... Yes, I think that in Turkey, uh, what has significantly affected people's connection to the past is the language reform of the 1920s, um, which is this shift from uh, Arabic and uh, Arabic script to Latin script, and also the kind of cutting of so many words of Arabic and Persian origin, because um, that essentially uh, has distanced, uh, you know, most Turks, especially of my age, from their immediate past. So, like a lot of documentation from the early years of these clubs is obviously in Ottoman, which is both like written in a different alphabet and also is just very works in a, a very very different way to uh contemporary turkish so in some ways i'm not sure that like even if you did 
even if that wasn't the case, then it, you know, I think that perhaps getting definitive answers on some of this is is not going to be possible. But that certainly doesn't help the fact that uh, people don't have access to that. So it kind of fuels, I think, uh, you know, just kind of old wives kind of tales or, or about it. But that's also, like I said before, that I think that's okay. I, I I don't feel particularly like 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 my life. Uh, I can get up in the morning and not be and not worry about uh, not knowing definitively why Besiktas play in black and white. I, I can live with that ambiguity. And I mean, like if I feel that, like you know, in life, that's kind of you know, we don't always get definitive answers to things. So we just have to kind of live with ambiguity. So in some ways, uh, it's kind of quite interesting just to see how mad. And people get with that when it comes to Turkish football origin stories. One of the definitive answers we did get tonight, and uh, a spoiler for the book, of course, but still highly recommend reading it, guys. Uh, just just touching touching the surface here. But you you are a Besiktas fan, so you go to a lot of Besiktas matches, of course. Less so now, probably now that you live in Ankara. But what are some of your favorite spots in Besiktas to go post match and, and pre match? Oh, I, I mean, a good question. Uh, I have like a group of friends who I go to lots of games with and they have a particular watering hole, um, which I don't particularly like, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I, I end up there quite a lot of the time. Um, but like, I really like, uh, I also, it depends what you want really. because you know, Besiktas on match day has all sorts. Uh, but I know the bar owner of like a sort of Irish pub, very close to the Eagle statue, uh, which does a very good, kind of craft beer or non-Turkish beer, uh, which, you know, is quite expensive nowadays, but um, is quite a nice kind of pre- or post-match kind of experience. And you're close enough to the statue and there's plenty of singing and chanting. So uh, that's quite cool. Um, I can't remember its name. I think, it, I think it might just be called like the, uh, the pub or the English pub or something. I don't know. Um, it's kind of north of the statue uh i don't know like i i don't really have a favorite spot sorry to disappoint um but yeah i sort of just end up because often i don't dictate things again i normally just let my friends or tag tag along really with them so uh, i end up wherever they end up and they don't also really have a spot they seem to just kind of shift about depending on who they bump into or where they come. That's the great thing about Beşiktaş and also uh, Kadıköy uh, and Fenerbahçe is that they, these uh, neighbourhoods have so many different kind of like nooks and crannies and different bars and connections to the football team. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, I'm sure probably in the day, Mecidiyaköy was probably a bit like that for Galatasaray. And it's probably like, I don't know, um, is it, uh, is it um, Ezev, you're the Galatasaray fan, I think, here, aren't you? Yes, sir. Um, that's right. I, I find I kind of came to Turkish football too late, really, because by the time I was starting to research it in kind of two thousand properly in 2011 2012 then it was the um turk telecom stadium that obviously like just opened or was just about to so i yeah. i never went never went to a game at the old medidiaco stadium and i don't as a result have a very good idea about the connection of galatasaray to that neighborhood but i i, I can't help but feel that it's a it must be a bit it's a bit of a loss well, really? yes, yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Actually, uh, as as any club moves from its kind of spiritual or at least generational home, it's always a bit of a loss. 
the stadium, Alessandro Stadium in Mezzidoka opened in the early mid '60s. After, as you as you as you mentioned in your in your book, that the three Istanbul clubs shared the Inner Stadium for some time, uh, and then Galatasaray moved to Alessandro, and then of course in 2011 we moved over to the Türk Telekom Arena. But like in terms of the the really hot, cauldron, hellish experience, maybe that's lost a little bit. But I don't know if that's necessarily because of the new stadium or because of the change in in football fans' profiles, as you also touched on. Um, but in terms of the the truly spiritual home, I think it's neither Türk Telekom nor Mecidiyeko. I think Galatasaray's real home is Beolo, um, in and around the the side streets of Taksim, on uh, you know near the Galatasaray Lycée, um, and on match day, that's where really all the action happens. That's where all the flares and the beers and the rucker and everything is full, is in full full swing. Um, Nevizadesoka in in Taksim is the place to be on Galatasaray match day. So that would be the equivalent of the of the of the pub that you refer to in in Besiktas. So that would be my go to place if I couldn't get a match day ticket. Okay, well, good, good. Again, again, like good info and also again, kind of revealing just how yeah, I don't actually have uh, you know very good concepts of the Galatasaray match day experience because I've just been to so few <coughs> so comparatively fewer games than than Beshtash. You, you can save all that for for volume two <laughs> exactly yeah hey don't steal my question that's what I was going to finish with actually we had Milan Zore on yesterday and uh, off air when we were done talking he did tell me he, he's planning a trip with some of his friends to go to Istanbul and he wanted to go to a match and he asked me what would you recommend? And obviously I told him, look, I'm a bit partisan in this, so I, I would go probably to Besiktas. But what would you say? And obviously you you have your preferences too, but what has been like as an outsider coming in in the beginning? Try to put yourself back in like 2011 or something like that. What was your best experience? Where where, where did you prefer to go to? What was the all-round best experience? And maybe also just to make it a city trip. Which which. One, which game, if they had to, if you had to pick one, a Galatasaray game, a Besiktas game, or a Fenerbahce game, what would you uh, recommend to someone like uh, like Miran? Well, I'm going to be quite boring and non-partisan and say that actually, like you could have a great time at any of those. I think what I'd be most keen on, I'd rec- most recommend, would be to try and catch a derby. Right? Um, I think that going for a derby match is really uh, quite different from any of the other games and it kind of doesn't really matter which which one those are uh, i think that um i've i've been to you know derbies between all of those teams and uh yeah they're they're all great um and so you could be you know it, you can be in Kadakir, you can be in Beshtash, you can be at the galatasaray arena and the atmosphere will be cracking and the pre-game will be cracking so uh, yeah, for me, I, I, w- I don't really say, oh, no, you must go to Bishtas. I'm more like, just try and catch a derby. It's going to be hard to get a ticket, of course. But, you know, um, yeah, that would be my recommendation. But you talk about traveling to all these different parts of, of Turkey, speaking with different fans and um, attending games as well. So if you had to take out the equation, uh, Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Bishtas Stadium, let's add... Uh, Trabzon and Bursa in there too as all champions of Turkey which has been like your favourite stadium to go and watch a game in and and if can you uh, tell us why that was just so we can get an idea and just so the listeners can uh, get your your thoughts basically um, yep 
Good question. And I think the answer is um, I went to a Guz Tepe match in 2017. It could even have been late 2016. I think it was 2016. <clears throat> and Guz Tepe have uh, a a lot of fans in Izmir, they're in Izmir's side, um, and Izmir is kind of suffering a stadium crisis at the moment because they basically their the old home was knocked down and no new ground was built. So they were playing in like this tiny stadium for Bornova Belediyespor or something like that, um, which is holds it's a capacity of maybe five thousand, and Pepe could uh, get a crowd along for a lot more than that, I think. And um, so the stadium was packed and um, they're playing Eskishahir. Um it was just the game in the second tier. Not and it was October, November time, so not a lot riding on it. But just the guest Tepe fans are fantastic. And also the, the Eskishahir sport fans were, were rowdy in their corner as well. And I don't know, I hadn't been to a game in Izmir before and guest Tepe have like uh, quite a lot of their own songs which are quite good fun to listen to. Um they have this goes 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 Tepe kind of back and forth that they do between the two stands, which I liked. Um, and like the game just got a bit wild, really. And I think that helped with the atmosphere. <laughs> there was just like uh, some quite controversial refereeing decisions, which like helps always helps to spice matters up. Uh, and like, you know, a bit of fisticuffs at one point. Uh, a fan got so enraged with the referee that um, he flung himself onto the top of the um, tunnel, you know, the, the the tunnel is this kind of fabric material that just stretched out. He jumped onto it uh, and was trying to punch the referee through the roof of the tunnel as oh, he went wow. off the pitch. Uh, which I don't. <laughs> that's dedication. I, that's, I, that's, I, uh, that's the Cameron Jerome effect right there. Well, I, I just um, I don't I don't condone that behaviour, but it was uh, it kind of captured in a way just like the. The atmosphere in some ways uh, there was also just a lot of uh, fun and pre and post game like, i just met a, a nice bunch of gestepe fans who i kind of interviewed beforehand and who kind of put me under their wing and took me along it was just like a cracking experience and this is why also just to kind of circle back around to your question uh and it's kind of perhaps quite a nice sort of finishing point in some ways but it kind of doesn't matter actually which game you go to uh what matters mostly is like as a foreigner uh is not to just go on your own is to actually just pluck up the courage and go and speak to a fan on before the game because like people uh are so lovely basically to a random stranger and they'll they'll take you under their wing and they'll kind of explain and, and take you through the whole kind of match day rigmarole and uh like everywhere that happens like consistently everywhere in turkey and that was the one of the joys of writing this book was i got you know it was basically you know uh in my job was to go to many different places in turkey and do that essentially <laughs> go up to random strangers and be like hi you know can you you know t do th you know tell me about your football club and show me things and you know with almost without you know no exception everywhere i met incredible people who were friendly, warm, uh, and took me along on some of the like just fantastic experiences. And that's totally available to anyone. You don't have to write a book about Turkish football. You just go up and, and can chat to someone. And it just gives you a, a glimpse into the country and the people in a way which you just wouldn't get otherwise. And did you do that in English or in your 
uh, gathered Turkish by that point already? Well, I mean, so uh, mostly in Turkish uh, for the book, because um, but it you know it it doesn't matter really you, if you don't know any Turkish, it's not really a problem uh, because in most places someone will know enough English or be able to introduce you to you know a university student or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know some sometimes it you know sometimes like a bit of a language barrier adds to the fun really um so yeah i just think that that is my overriding impression and the thing i wanted to convey most this book was was that kind of like that warmth and openness to to kind of like the stranger and the desire like the person who takes interest if you take interest in turkish football and in turkey then you know people are often really touched and re- reciprocate and uh, did you have a chance to go to the new Eskişehir sports stadium already i've been there i went there for like a cup final a couple of years ago um but not for an Eskişehir match okay so definitely put that on your to-do list because i think you'll be impressed because that's one of the my actually that's apart from basically that's just my favorite atmosphere in turkey that's Eskişehir sport it's absolutely amazing especially the the ss bando it's uh I just love that you have to you have to check it out. It's it's amazing, um, but that leads me and, to and, and brother. If if you do go to sorry to cut you off, kind of yeah, if you do go to Eski Show for the stadium, definitely check out the Odun Pazar Modern Art Museum, which is opening in early September, because it's a it's a wonderful building in a great area, and it's like a it's a, it's going to be like a really world class institution when it opens in a couple of months. So definitely put it on your list as well. Okay, well, it's so easy to get there from Ankara, so I should definitely do both of those things. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, uh, I love Eskishir. I've been a couple of times, and uh, yeah, any excuse to go back. So it sounds like a weekend of uh, a football match, some art gallerying would be would be excellent. So yeah, yeah. And before before we bow out, John, do you have any plans for a second book coming up anytime soon? I do have some plans for a second book. But it might not be about Turkish football. About uh, politics, then I assume. Well, uh, <laughs> I want to. I, I want to stay coy for now because nothing is uh, nothing is kind of certain right now. But uh, yeah, when I uh, I would like to write another book, but um, it might not be on Turkish football. Okay, like, so. Uh, thank you. I want to thank you already very much, John McManus, for joining us today and telling us a little bit about your experience, about your book. Um, for our listeners, for our Turkaholics, please go and check out John's book, Welcome to Hell. You can find it on Amazon, for example. Uh, but also for me personally, uh, locally here on uh, bold.com is where I was able to find it. For for those of you in Holland and in Belgium, you can find it there. And I'm sure there's German versions of that. Um, so wherever you are in the world, take a look. Welcome to hell. Highly recommend it. It gets the, the badass stamp of approval from the Football a la Turca podcast crew. Um, <laughs> nice. So, John, I just very much want to thank you for joining us today. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, first of all, thank you, uh, Khan, Ozer and Burak, for having me on. Um, it's been really a pleasure chatting. Um, I only really, I'm on Twitter I don't really do Instagram or Facebook or any of that. So, uh, yeah, I'm at John McManus 06. So, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and nowhere else. <laughs> um, <laughs> you should have called yourself great. the real John McManus. Uh, well, unfortunately, my name is quite... Uh, it's not 
you know, John Smith, but uh, there are still quite a lot of us out there. And unfortunately, someone with like eight Twitter followers had already got at John McManus. So, um, <laughs> so I kind of thought, actually, um, as some of you will perhaps have noticed, the uh, the little distinguisher is a like nod to my ankle alert. Uh, roots over the past the three years. Played, yes, and, and being being uh, having a mother from there, zero six very dear to my heart as well, John. So um, I will definitely try and give you some off the uh, beaten track Angara tips um, offline. I'd love that. Yeah, thanks. Well, anyone, anyway, guys, thank you very much for joining us, John. Thank you very much, and thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Bye.